Hi, this is Shiva P. Raman from Johns Hopkins University. Now, over the course of this lecture, I'd like to talk a little bit about our generalized CT approach to imaging patients with hematuria, and more specifically, some of the challenges in terms of detecting subtle cases of transitional cell carcinoma. Now, I'm going to begin with a brief discussion of CT rography technique, and specifically, some of the protocol options that are available, some of the ancillary techniques that you may or may not choose to incorporate into your own practice, and then finally, how we at Johns Hopkins choose to image patients with suspected hematuria. We'll then move on and talk a little bit about our hematuria workup, what kind of diagnoses you should be looking for, and then we'll spend the majority of this lecture talking about transitional cell carcinoma, which I think is an incredibly difficult diagnosis, and specifically, what you should be looking for in each of the three major components of the collecting system, the pelvocalocele system, the ureters, and then finally the bladder. Now, when you're putting together a CT urography protocol, your primary goal is to maximize distension of the upper urinary tract. But by the same token, you want to do that with the least possible radiation dose. Now, in terms of protocol availability, I think there's really three major protocols that are being used out in the community. The, mo the first, and by far the most common protocol, is a single bolus technique. Now, the single bolus technique is relatively simple. It incorporates, it involves giving 120 cc's of Omnipeg 350, followed by acquisition of separate arterial, venous, and delayed scans. Now, because you're acquiring multiple different phases, you are going to increase your sensitivity for renal cell carcinoma, which makes up about 90% of all urologic tumors. In addition, because the vast majority of your contrast is being excreted at 5 to 8 minutes, you're going to get great distension of the collecting system, and you're going to maximize your sensitivity for subtle transitional cell carcinomas. Now, by the same token, because you are acquiring multiple discrete phases, your radiation dose is going to be a bit higher. Now, if you really want to reduce your radiation dose, there is an alternative, and that's the split bolus technique. Now, the split bolus technique involves dividing your contrast dose into two. So you start by giving about 50 cc's of contrast at time point zero. You wait five minutes to give another 80 cc's of contrast. And then at seven minutes, you acquire combined nephrographic and excretory phase images. Now, because you're acquiring fewer phases, you're combining two phases after all, you are going to reduce the radiation dose to the patient. But at the same time, because only a smaller percentage of your contrast is ultimately being excreted, 50 cc's, you are going to get less robust collecting system distension, and unfortunately, you are going to reduce your sensitivity for transitional cell carcinoma. Now, the third option, albeit one that as far as I know, almost no one uses, is the triple bolus technique. Now, the triple bolus technique entails splitting the contrast dose into three separate smaller boluses. And so you give 30 cc's, then 50, then 65 cc's, and you acquire combined cortical medullary, nephrographic, and excretory phase images. Now, obviously, you are combining multiple different phases, so you do reduce radiation dose. Unfortunately, because only a very tiny amount of your contrast is ultimately going to be excreted, your collecting system distension is very poor, and I feel this technique really reduces your sensitivity for transitional cell carcinoma. In general, I really recommend the triple bolus technique should not be considered as a potential protocol. Now, once you've decided which of those three major protocols to utilize, the next step is to decide whether or not you'd like to utilize a number of different ancillary techniques which have been described in the literature. These include things like abdominal compression, IV saline, oral saline, Lasix, prone positioning, and a lower dose of IV contrast. So why don't we start by talking about abdominal compression. I think we've all seen these devices. They're compression pads that go over the abdomen, and when inflated, they essentially trap the contrast in the upper urinary tract and the pelvocalocele system. 
Unfortunately, there is a lot of data in the literature suggesting that the utility of abdominal compression is questionable at best. An article in Radiology in 2005 suggested that compression really did very little in terms of ultimately improving either distension or opacification of the urinary tract. Now, even if you believed that compression actually helped, the problem is that abdominal compression can really affect your workflow. First of all, you do have to acquire two separate sets of images, one with compression and another after compression is released so that the contrast can flow distally into the ureters and subsequently into the bladder. And that, of course, will increase your radiation dose. Secondly, you have to be very careful about using compression in patients with any kind of an aortic pathology, including abdominal aortic aneurysms or recent surgery, and it can be a little cumbersome to deploy in patients who are obese. For those reasons, I think that abdominal compression is really not that useful and potentially could just slow you down for no real benefit. Now, what about IV diuretics or IV Lasix? Now, unlike abdominal compression, there is a good deal of data in the literature suggesting that Lasix has a clear benefit in terms of, in terms of distending the collecting system. In addition, clearly, Lasix will dilute out the contrast and reduce beam hardening artifact, streak artifact. You can see through the contrast a little better to identify subtle transitional cell carcinomas. Unfortunately, Lasix does have some downsides, and I think the major downsides come in terms of daily workflow. Your technologists and your nurses have to be willing to take into account Lasix allergies, blood pressure variations, renal function, and it can just slow down your daily workflow having to administer a medication. For that reason, you really have to take into account whether your workflow can handle giving diuretics on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, what about utilizing prone positioning? Now, the theory underlying prone positioning is that the contrast flows downhill into the pelvic calcial system, theoretically improving your distension. Unfortunately, again, the literature is somewhat equivocal. This article, done in 2009, suggested that supine positioning was actually better than prone positioning with regard to pacification and distension of the pelvic calcial system. Now, again, even if you assume that prone positioning actually works, which I'm not so sure about, prone positioning can be incredibly uncomfortable, particularly in patients who are obese, who have other comorbidities, who have lung abnormalities. Try lying still in the prone position for five minutes on a hard CT table. It's not that easy. And for that reason, I really think that prone positioning is not a good idea and is not necessary. Now, what about another option, and that's oral hydration? Now, Satomi Kaomoto, one of my colleagues here at Hopkins, wrote a great paper in 2006 in AJR where she looked at oral hydration as opposed to a number of other ancillary techniques, including things like IV hydration, Lasix, prone positioning, etc., etc. And she found that oral hydration pretty much worked just as well as almost anything else. It gave you great distension, and it also diluted out the contrast. In my mind, oral hydration is a slam dunk. You give 1,000 cc's of contrast about 20 minutes prior to the commencement of the study, and not only do you improve opacification, you also dilute the contrast, and you improve opacification and distension of the bladder. Finally, what about another ancillary option that very few places use, and that's lowering the dose of contrast but using a higher volume? So, for example, instead of using the traditional 120 cc's of Omnipake 350, you go to maybe 200 cc's of Omnipake 240. Now, the theory underlying this is that by giving a larger volume of contrast, you get better distension of the collecting systems in the ureters, but the lower dose results in less dense contrast, less beam-hardening artifact, and a better ability to identify subtle abnormalities in the collecting system lumen. Now, the problem with this is that it assumes, it assumes that the only reason you do a CT urogram is to identify TCCs, and I, I wholeheartedly disagree with that. 
you're looking for other etiology, any etiology of hematuria on these CT urograms. And that includes transitional cell carcinoma, but also includes other etiologies such as renal cell carcinoma, renal AVMs, renal artery aneurysms, stones, et cetera, et cetera. And by giving that lower dose of contrast, you're just going to wash out your images. You're going to get very poor opacification of the remainder of the parenchymal organs of the abdomen and pelvis. And I think you're really just going to create suboptimal images, even though you may get relatively decent collecting system opacification. Again, for those reasons, I really discourage people from utilizing this option. Now, after all of that, after all of those protocol options and ancillary techniques, what do we do at Hopkins? Now at Hopkins, our generalized philosophy is that the most important thing when you're performing a CT scan is to answer the clinical question. As far as I'm concerned, there's nothing worse than doing a study with a lower radiation dose and ending up with a suboptimal study that just needs to be repeated. You've got to answer the clinical question first and foremost. And for that reason, we utilize the single bolus technique. We think it gives the best extension of the collecting system. It gives you multiple phases that are going to maximize your sensitivity for renal cell carcinoma. But that being said, we do try to reduce the overall radiation burden to the patient by only imaging the parts of the patient that are absolutely necessary in each phase. So we start by acquiring non-contrast images only through the kidneys. This phase essentially serves two purposes. You're going to look for uh, tiny stones, which could be causing the patient's hematuria, and you're also giving yourself a baseline so that you can better judge whether a lesion is truly enhancing or not on the later phases. We then acquire arterial phase images through the entirety of the abdomen and pelvis. This is going to give you a good look at the kidneys with the arterial phase, the best phase to identify clear cell renal cell carcinomas. And you're also going to get unopacified images through both the pelvic system, the ureters, and the bladder. Now, we put a lot of emphasis on identifying bladder tumors, and the arterial phase is absolutely wonderful for identifying these lesions. You're going to get great distension of the bladder because you've hydrated the patient prior to the study, and you're going to be able to see subtle hyperemia and wall thickening. We then acquire venous phase images just through the kidneys. And again, this gives you another look at all the parenchymal organs of the abdomen, and you can identify renal cell carcinomas. Finally, we're going to get delayed phases through both the abdomen and the pelvis. This gives you a final phase to look at the kidneys to find renal cell carcinomas, and also gives you opacified images through both the intrarenal collecting systems, the ureters, and the bladder. Now, we believe that all of the ancillary techniques I described earlier, for the most part, are unnecessary. They, they can slow you down, they can hurt your workflow, and in the worst case scenario, they give you very little benefit for a lot of pain and discomfort for the patient. Rather, as Satomi's paper showed several years ago, hydrating the patient with water is going to be just as good as anything else. We give the patient about a liter of water 20 minutes prior to the study, and we request that they don't urinate until after the study is done. And what that does is it improves distension of the collecting system in the ureters, it improves bladder distension so you can identify subtle TCCs, and by the same token also will reduce the incidence of contrast-induced nephropathy. Now we don't believe in giving these alternative doses of contrast. We believe that you want to give a standard 120 cc's of Omnipake 350 because after all, your goal isn't just to identify TCCs, but it's also to identify all the other abnormalities that could potentially be causing a patient's hematuria. Now one point that I'd like to make is that we almost never acquire delayed images any later than five minutes. If you wait too long to acquire your delayed images, you're going to get pooling of contrast in the collecting system and the ureters that can be extremely dense. And as a result, you're going to be stuck with beam hardening artifact and streak artifact that could potentially obscure subtle tumors. The only reason I'd wait any longer than five minutes is in a patient with a UPJ obstruction, where you may want to wait in order to see if the patient is going to excrete any contrast. 
Now, once you've acquired the images, I think it's important to note that it's not enough to just look at these images in the axial plane or using the MPRs. At Johns Hopkins, we have a somewhat unique workflow. And as a result, we have the axial and the multiplanar images read by one reader, and then a separate reader, maybe a day or two later, is going to look at those images using 3D volumetric imaging. So they're going to create VR and MIP images and interpret the images again to look for subtle lesions. And I can't tell you how many times at Hopkins we've seen subtle transitional cell carcinomas, particularly of the pelvic seal system and the ureters, that have been missed on the source axial images and the MPRs, but have been caught on the uh, 3D images. Things such as blunting of the calyces, subtle amputation of the calyces, irregularity and destruction of a calyx, subtle urethelial thickening, subtle asymmetric hydronephrosis or hydroureter are much easier to appreciate on the 3D images. And hopefully some of the examples I'm going to show you during the course of this talk will give you a sense for how useful 3D imaging can be when it comes to 3D, 3, uh, CT urography interpretation. Well, I think that was a good introduction to CT urography. Why don't we stop there? And when we come back, we'll go into depth about our imaging approach to hematuria and the diagnosis of transitional cell carcinoma. See you guys later. Bye.